Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and for New York's Stranger Than Fiction screening series at the IFC Centre. On this episode, I talk to Clay Tweel, the director of Gleason, about the NFL football player Steve Gleason. He played for the New Orleans Saints and made a dramatic play in a game one year after Hurricane Katrina that became a symbol of the city's comeback. In 2011, Gleason revealed that he was stricken with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, that typically claims a life within two to five years. Soon after the diagnosis, Gleason learned that his wife Michelle was pregnant with their first child. He began keeping a video journal for his unborn son and then enlisted other filmmakers to document his family. Here's a clip from soon after his diagnosis when Gleason could still speak. Although this is part of the challenges, like, yeah, I want to beat ALS, I want to win that part of the game. But for me, the biggest part of the game is beating all the other shit that you and I have talked about is, is karma from our parents or um, relationships with, with uh, family or relationships with friends or um, your own spirituality and just peace in your heart. But I just think there's a bigger battle there about being able to say, okay, you know, I have been, have this diagnosis and it's not going to, it's not going to crush my life, uh, even if it does crush, you know, crush my body. The film is multi-layered. It's not only about Gleason losing his motor skills, but also what it means to his wife, Michelle, as a caregiver. I have never wanted to be a saint. I've never been a saint before, Steve. I'm never going to be a saint. I don't want to be like a devil or a, a dick face, but I don't want to be a saint either. I just want to be a real person. And there's a strong theme about fathers and sons. The film premiered at the 2016 Sundance Festival, where it was bought by Open Road and Amazon with a hefty investment for its release. Gleason is Clay's fourth feature documentary as a director. His first film, Make Believe, is about teenage magicians. That was followed by Print the Legend, about pioneers of 3D printing, and Finders Keepers, about a bizarre dispute over a mummified leg. I started the conversation by asking Clay about his background. As I was researching you in this film, I came across the fact that your father, Ron Tweel, was Muhammad Ali's lawyer, and I have to start with that. Sure. Uh, what, what was that like growing up? Uh, I mean, it was frankly just amazing. Um, I remember the the first magic trick I ever saw was done by Muhammad Ali. He loved to used to do the sort of like hidden handkerchief trick, um, and he loved to perform magic and and you know gather quite a crowd. Um, and then he did uh, another thing was like this levitation trick. Um, that would make people freak out. And um, yeah, so that was honestly the first doc that I did was about teenage magicians. I, I sent it to Muhammad as soon as it was done just because I wanted him. I knew he would get a kick out of it. 
And do you think that seed was kind of planted by by his magic? Yeah, I mean it, that from there, I had a a couple cousins that that also did magic, and and then just randomly, uh, the the producer that I was working with on that uh, was a teenage magician himself, and sort of uh, came up with the idea to start following teenage magicians then. But but yeah, Muhammad was just someone who, and he and his wife honestly um, were a big inspiration to me growing up. They're just so um, down to earth, elegant, smart, classy people that it, it's hard not to be in their presence. You just sort of can feel their, their energy. Now, what was the occasions that you'd ever have to be in his presence? They would come to Charlottesville, uh, and, and my dad was their lawyer, I think from 84 on, uh, and, um, Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia. Yes. Um, so it's, it's a little bit, uh, random that, uh, that's the place where, uh, Muhammad's lawyer would would be taking up because they lived in Kentucky. They lived in uh, well, or they Michigan, lived in Michigan, uh, and then they had a residence in Louisville and and in Arizona. But um, so they were bounced around a little bit. But so how a, was it that this Virginia lawyer became their go to person? There was um, my dad's friend was representing him for a while, and then he sort of passed him off to my dad mm. in the early eighties, and that's crazy how it happened. And my whole childhood, because in in Charlottesville is a fairly small town. Um, all these people knew that my dad represented Muhammad, and they would always ask me, like, are you named after Muhammad? Because Cassius Clay. That's right. I never <laughs> so, thought of that. <laughs> uh, so my whole life, I sort of had always had to answer that question, but it is, in fact, my mom's maiden name. So I have to ask, because Gleason is such a film about fathers and sons, what's your relationship with your father? <laughs> I have gotten that question quite a bit too, because uh, Finders Keepers also has a lot to do with uh, fathers and sons. Um, and I had somebody at Sundance this past year ask me that question, like, "Are you and your dad okay?" <laughs> and he was right behind me. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, we're good." Um, yeah, no, I had and uh, still do have a great relationship with my dad, but I'm just, I think, open to trying to find a lot of the, the universal truths, and those often find my way back to, in my mind anyway, the heritage of, of why people do what they do sometimes goes back to your roots and, and the, the household you were brought up in and the kind of personalities uh, of your parents. Clay got an early taste of filmmaking as a crew member for the horror movie Cry Wolf, shot in Virginia. That inspired Clay to move to Los Angeles. He connected with Seth Gordon, who is making a documentary about video game players called The King of Khan, A Fistful of Quarters. The film follows two rivals competing for the Donkey Kong Championship. Here's one of the players, Billy Mitchell. I had somebody draw an analogy for me once that I always remember. The top French pilot in World War I shot down 24 enemy planes. The top American pilot, you don't know his name, do you? Nobody does, but it's Eddie Rickenbacker shot down 26 enemy planes. The German ace, the Red Baron, everyone know, knows who the Red Baron is. That's because he shot down 87 enemy planes. I mean, he was the best. There's just, there's a level of difference between people. And it translates into some games. In 2007, The King of Khan stood out from other documentaries for its full embrace of pop culture and its humor. Seth Gordon went on to direct Hollywood comedies like Four Christmases and Horrible Bosses. 
He's also served as a producer on all of Clay's documentaries. I asked Clay how he got connected to the King of Kong. I moved out to L.A. and I showed up and did the classic, you know, hi, Hollywood. Like, what do you got for me? And Seth sort of took me uh, under his wing and he's like, here's Final Cut and After Effects. Learn these and I can try to get you some work. Um, And uh, shortly after that, one of the, the conversations we had, he was like, well, I have all this footage that I just shot of these sort of 40-year-old video game players. Why don't, you know, would you be interested in sort of watching this stuff and seeing if there's anything interesting in there? And that started what ended up being three years of almost consistent work for me on The King of Kong. Hmm. And like, I was, I didn't never went to film school. And, you know, I think I consider that time period my training ground in so many different ways for storytelling, for making documentaries, but just overall storytelling in general um, and, and really crafting character arcs. You know, anytime we watch a documentary that's as, as accomplished as that one, after the fact, it's just, it, it kind of feels like, oh, this story must have come together naturally. And, and that story does have lots of you know, suspense and a great arc to it. But talk to me about what it was actually making that film and coming out with that final result. Yeah, I think the largest lesson that I took away from my experience on Kong was just how much people cared about that story, that it was about, Seth called it the the best, like, high stakes, low stakes story that he's seen. And, you know, it might not be uh, saving the world to, to care about Donkey Kong, but it meant so much to these guys. And that the audience became as invested in the results and the outcome of what they wanted as the the actual subjects themselves. And so telling a really good character story and having the audience empathize with whatever passions are being presented on screen really was eye-opening for me. Someone who had never worked in the documentary field, that sort of blew my mind and made me want to tell, you know, similar stories. So you went on to make, as you said, this film, Make Believe, which we showed at our Doc NYC Festival, and then you made Finders Keepers that showed at Sundance. You made a film called Print the Legend about uh, 3D printers. So you you had amassed a a body of work. At the time that you entered the project, uh, Gleason, like, you know, how were you feeling about your career? I, you know, I felt like the career was going well, but I maybe necessarily hadn't broken through per se yet and and I at that point I had done uh, make believe in and print the legend and we had just won the editing award at South by and that's when I sort of really started working on on Gleason in early 2014 um, while also simultaneously working on finders keepers mm. a little bit uh, but you know I, I I felt like Gleason was this opportunity for sure to to make a, a a much bigger documentary, I saw that there was going to be both the the character depths and and complexities there, but also the the scope of of the story and and of the potential audience for it in a way that you know some of the other docs were a little like quirky character uh, and and I think that there was a real level of importance in Gleason that I maybe hadn't explored with those other films yet. Over the course of the film Gleason, we watch the former athlete gradually lose his motor skills and his voice until he's confined to a wheelchair 
where he operates an electronic keyboard with his eyeball. Here he is using his electronic voice to leave a message for his young son, Rivers. Rivers, you are an awesome boy or man, depending on what times in your life you happen to watch this. But the world can grind on you. Do not become obsessive to the point where you are unhappy. Let your best stand for what it is. If it's not sufficient, that's okay. You did your best. By the time Clay met Gleason, the family had already accumulated hundreds of hours of footage. Clay explains how he got involved. Yeah, so the history of the project is that Steve and Michelle started filming themselves shortly after um, Steve was diagnosed. I think Steve might have even filmed a few things before he was even officially diagnosed in January of 2011. And then there was briefly uh, another filmmaker that was involved, uh, Sean Pamphilon, and then these two guys, Ty Minton Small and David Lee, they were 24-year-olds, just like one of them was just out of film school, and um, they really embedded themselves with the family and became not only cinematographers, but caretakers for Steve, babysitters for Rivers, and just like ingrained in the daily lives of Steve and Michelle. And so these guys were around and helping to film what was going down in the family's life because Steve at that point could no longer or had a a pretty hard time um, holding the camera. And uh, and it's funny, um, the first day I think of Ty filming was the day of River's birth. Hmm. And um, Michelle was pretty pissed. <laughs> you know, she's like, here's this kid coming in. And he, Steve wants him to be in the delivery room, like, and all up in my so, business. So Steve was kind of driving the film a little bit more than Michelle was at that point. And- yeah, Steve, for sure, had, had um, was driving the ship in that he was coming up with the content that he wanted to pass on to his child. And that was the 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 structure of, of everything a lot of these what they called 300 second video journals and he would do these little life lessons as well as memories from his past and as well as just filming little moments in their lives of you know going intertubing up in the northwest or uh, Steve got really into doing time-lapse photography um, he just was trying to amass like all the things that that you know he enjoys and he likes and he was going to try to pass that on to rivers to experience in some way um, so I'm I'm curious what it was like to navigate all the different people who were involved at that point. So you've got Steve and Michelle who have an interest in how this story is going to be told. You've got these two filmmakers who have been filming this material and who are embedded with the family and you know now are as much friends as they are documentary makers, the family. There are other producers uh, connected uh, to the project. How did you have to like work around all these different stakeholders? Yeah, it was a, it was a large team, and everybody had their their thoughts on what the movie should look like. But I think that sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was it, it was interesting for me. It was the, the largest team that I've ever worked with on a film. So, you know, having to navigate that was certainly a new experience for me. But I think at its core, people understood very early on what the movie what the best version of the movie should do it should be it should inspire people but to be true to Stephen Michelle not in any saccharine way 
And I think that that directive came directly down from the top of Steve in that very first conversation I had with him, said that he wanted the movie to detail what living with ALS is really like, what the daily challenges are. And so that was my sort of guiding light and guiding light in a lot of conversations to have with all of those people. And and I'd say I want to give a lot of credit to Ty and David too as these young kids who, you know, were sort of embedded so long but also had the awareness to understand that they had lost perspective. Um, uh, but they were gracious enough to also come out to L.A., and help us in the editorial process in the editing room because they knew the, f- the material so well. And so that was, we couldn't have done it without them in that way. They, you know, helping to prioritize the footage when you have so much. Right, you have- so you've got 1,200 hours of footage. By my calculations, even if you watch that 40 hours a week, that's like 30 weeks of just watching footage. Correct. It took us three and a half months to just watch, organize, log, and bin, you know, between uh, there was four of us, so Ty, David, myself, and co-editor Brian Palmer, who I worked with on Finders Keepers. I read a quote in an interview. You said the first idea that you have for making a film never winds up being the film that uh, you make. And I wonder what your first idea in in this film was. My first idea was that it was going to be a, a movie about how a guy finds his purpose through a set of tragic circumstances. And I thought that the like the Team Gleason of it all, the charity that he starts, um, and finding his, his true calling and sort of helping to um, bring awareness to ALS was going to be the, the through line of like, I'm actually not a football player. I am going to be an inspiration in another way. That was my original thought. But what it turned out to be was there's, to me, two surprises that I found in the footage. One of those is the intergenerational story of fatherhood uh, that emerged, which was the fact that Steve was leaving these messages for his son and that those messages were a direct reflection on his own relationship with his father and how, you know, there was this soundbite of Steve's dad talking about generational sin and how unless the, the next generation is aware, then... His father is a very religious man. Correct. Correct. And um, that's where a lot of the tension between Steve and his father arises in the film. But And those – so there's some really dramatic scenes between Steve and his father in the film. Those were shot by Ty and David too. Yeah. Um, and, and Michelle as well. Um, there's a very dr- dramatic scene where Steve and his dad are sort of having it out finally about religion and, and Steve is – uh, not to, to ruin too much for people who have seen the movie but or who haven't seen the movie, um, you know, they're, they're having this sort of screaming match about uh, accepting each other's uh, religious beliefs. And Michelle was filming that on her iPhone just laying back in bed watching it all go down. Um, and um, Steve has called that one of the most important conversations of his life. So I knew that I... You know, I saw him say that in a video journal a few days later, and I was like, all right, we have to find a way to get that into into the movie. So that intergenerational story of fatherhood and and trying to perhaps, like, understand the flaws of the previous generation was something that I felt like was beyond fathers and sons. It was more parents and children. Like, that is that is even more universal than a father and son story. So I thought that, that broadened 
the audience immediately. And then in addition to that is the story of Michelle. Um, I didn't, when we first started, no one talked about what her journey was like through this whole thing. And there'd been a lot of content on Steve over the years and, you know, NFL Network, ESPN, a lot of archive that we could dig into there as well as just, you know, there was, uh, his story's been told many times. So our job was to go deeper and and uh, unearth some new um, facets to the story. And Michelle was certainly that, the caretaker angle inside to this whole experience for them. That's a huge part of this film. And, uh, and, and she really is an extraordinary character. And the film is really unflinching in its look at the tensions that can arise uh, for a caregiver uh, that, yeah. you know, I mean, her life is in a way being sacrificed as much as uh, as, as as much as Steve, the patient. Yeah. I, I mean, it for me, there's this culmination of that in, in one of the scenes in the movie where they're having this f- fight right before uh, they go to bed. And um, Michelle is in their old bed and Steve is in his new sort of hospital bed and they're in their bedroom and there's this clear space between them physical space and you can feel the the emotional space between them as well and you know the both steve and michelle have this amazing ability to say how they're feeling when they're feeling it and sort of not have a filter and and i think that's really rare and and so you have these incredibly frank conversations and the the way in which the complex psychology of what it's like to be a caregiver, I think, is expressed in that scene so subtly but beautifully by Michelle. Of You can tell that she feels she's exhausted, and she's exhausted because she, she feels guilt and remorse and anger, and, you know, there's, there's all these conflicting emotions in her, and she, it's just wiped her out. Um, and so I've never really seen something like that before and had never thought about myself the effect of of you know people who who have an illness and what it does to the caretaker so that for me became incredibly important to show that that journey for her now you described earlier that you initially kind of led by what steve's dream was for this documentary uh record and and i wonder if a kind of loyalty to steve's vision for the film ever clashed with Michelle's interests. Yeah, I I don't think that they were at odds too much, honestly. Only on very few things. And yeah, for the most part, like the the footage was so intimate and raw and they allowed us to go to almost every place that we could imagine going in their bathroom, in their bedroom. And, you know, so I was just amazed at what we were able to get into at all. And we certainly had a conversation with Steve and Michelle and and all of their families to make sure that we weren't ever exploiting that line and that vulnerability. But for the most part, they were agreeable. I think Steve actually had a little bit of a problem initially with that bedroom scene. But it's Michelle was like, if we're going to do this, if we're going to show our lives, we got to be real. And she was very adamant that that scene go in. We'll be back with more from Clay Tweel after the break. If you love documentary film, 
you should know about a special event that's coming up in Columbia, Missouri. It's called the True False Film Fest, happening March 2nd to 5th. Now in its 14th year, the festival has earned a deep respect for its exploration of the permeable space between fiction and nonfiction. Now there's a True False podcast that you can hear on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information, visit truefalse.org. I have to admit, when I first heard of the film Gleason, I was highly reticent. I know this sounds heartless, but there are a lot of disease documentaries, and they tend to blur together. I asked Clay how he grappled with that challenge. One thing that I personally love to do and and hopefully try to accomplish in all of my movies, which is trying to subvert the expectations of the audience, try to go beyond the logline. So, for example, in the print legend um, movie about entrepreneurs in the 3D printing space, we don't really talk about 3D printing after like 15 minutes into the movie. Mm. It's, a, it's a movie about capitalism and, you know, trying to build a business. Uh, and, and so trying to tap into those other themes and those other areas, those universal truths, are really what gets me the most excited about putting documentaries together. Um, you know, the, the, the cliche of like everybody has a story. <laughs> um, but to me, it's, it's every, you can find something in everybody's story that sort of connects us all. And so for Gleason, it was certainly about trying to accomplish many things at once. We were trying to show what it's like to live with ALS and, and take people through that, that journey of losing all of your motor skills and the ability to move everything in your body and what that's like emotionally and, and physically, but also make it about something else. So again, the, the intergenerational story of fatherhood, the idea of caregiving, the idea of these um, existential truths that, that Steve was confronting, um, not only with his own father, but in himself. Those were the ideas that, that I latched onto to help give the film some depth that went beyond just, you know, even my own first impressions of what the story is going to be about, you know, guy forming a charity and finding himself. I wonder what Steve's father thought of the movie. I was worried about that too. Mike saw the movie and was just like, yeah, great. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And that was a, a big load off. It <laughs> I, I've had that experience on a lot of my movies as well. The people that you feel like are going to potentially have a hard time accepted in a level that maybe you didn't expect. I remember for um, Finders Keepers, John Wood's sister, who was pretty over the story being told and us coming around and, and uh, you know, she was pretty, could be pretty hard on her brother too. When we showed her the movie, I'll never forget, she said, um, I feel like I've been watching this story unfold through a knot hole in the fence and you guys knocked the fence down. Hmm. I was like, oh, that's that's the best compliment I've ever received. That's terrific. And what's it been like for uh, Michelle and Steve to have this film out in the world? My, well, <laughs> I saw the other day Steve tweeted, people keep telling me that, that I'm moving them and touching them, and that's grossly exaggerated or something like that. <laughs> you know, that he's sort of poking fun at the fact that he, he can't move nor touch people. <laughs> uh, but I think that they really appreciated 
the fact that their story and a lot of the struggle that they've gone through is affecting people, uh, inspiring people, giving people hope. You know, Michelle has been great and has come on the road, and uh, it's very hard for Steve to travel. So I wish that he could have gotten to come to more events and, and really feel the outpouring of love that the film has received over this last year. Um, but has he gotten any of that? Oh yeah, I'm for for sure. And people, he's very active on social media, and people are are certainly tweeting at him or posting. I think getting in touch with him as as best they can. And Michelle certainly has been relaying a lot of her experiences back to back to Steve. But uh, she's been able to come on the road at some of these festivals and really just experience the appreciation. And a lot of that has been from nurse caretaker people who have come up and and talked to Michelle afterwards is hmm. has really been been the word i keep coming back to is powerful i mean it's just it's been amazing to watch when a documentary ends the story keeps going in uh in in real life and i wonder how th- their lives are today i i have to imagine that it's still a lot of work for Michelle as a as a caretaker yeah, they've adjusted. So the movie, I think, chronicles a lot of the f- Steve losing things. You know, he loses all of his motor skills, talking, walking, eating, and eventually breathing. And I think the psychology of no longer having to fear losing anything and having a pretty regimented life has, Michelle has told me, he's doing the best that he's done in, in three four years just because of that. The, that fear is gone. Um, and he still, he picks up rivers almost every day from school. Uh, he uh, still writes journals for, for rivers on a little blog. And, and he's around and he's still doing work with the foundation and um, he's fulfilled in a, in a lot of ways. So doing pretty well, honestly, for, for all things considered. Um, and Michelle has uh, really been embracing her art, which she gets into in the movie. She's it's a, it's a very accomplished illustrator. Yeah, these these patterns that sort of emerge from her brain as she's just sitting there in these doctor's offices trying to cope with all the things swirling around her and that she can just focus in on these abstract shapes and colors and come out with these beautiful patterns has really been amazing to see and, and has fulfilled her in a lot of ways. So uh, she's embracing that and uh, she's got a website uh, that she's put up and we're trying to twist her arm a little bit to to maybe have a show or something soon. I think the family's doing doing pretty well for the circumstances and for the whirlwind journey they've been on. You described when you started off on Gleason, you were at a point in your career where maybe you were looking for something that was a little bit meatier a, a story. And now you really, you got that. And you also have got a lot of, got more recognition for this film than for your earlier films. It's you know, kind of what you hope for. You go to Sundance, you get a uh, strong uh, deal that you had with Amazon and Open Road. You, you know, you, you win nice reviews and, uh, and attention. Now that you're on the other side of that, you know, what, what are you thinking about doing next? You know, it's been interesting. I was talking to a few other doc filmmakers last night about trying to, I've had, uh, for the first time in my career, projects coming to me, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to decide what to do next. I've spent a, a decade sort of scrapping to get by. And so it's, a, it's an interesting position, a very uh, fortunate one for sure. Um, but uh, beyond some of the new projects, there's one that I've been working on for six years 
um, that we've been filming on and off in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, about these identical African-American twins. And so that's, that's sort of my passion project that I am uh, looking to wrap up very shortly here in, in the new year. Fingers crossed. We don't know when that will be done or, or where it will be going, but uh, it's certainly this intimate character portrait of these two guys trying to make it out of the ghetto. I mean, your close colleague, Seth Gordon, after he made King of Kong, he really took off with a, a big fiction uh, directing career. Does that have any interest for you? You know, the the development of fictional movies uh, is also a, a long haul. I've had a, a few scripts with friends or um, writers that I've met that I've taken interest in. And so, yeah, I, I think I'd like to try my hand at that. But I also know that I'll never stop making documentaries. It's just... It's fulfilling for me in a, in a number of ways, and I, I like the challenge. I like the sort of unexpected nature of it. So, you know, regardless of wherever my career goes, that's going to be a constant. I want to thank Clay Tweel for speaking with me. You can watch his film Gleason on Amazon. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media master, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York, look for me on Tuesday nights at the IFC Center for our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. And if you're in Miami, look for me at the Miami Film Festival happening March 3rd through 12th. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.